American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Every year we host a Summer Teachers Institute, which is open to educators at all levels. Usually it takes place on the Elmira College campus and at Mark Twain's summer home and writing retreat, Quarry Farm. But this year, as with last year, we are migrating the Institute online to accommodate participants who may find it more difficult to travel during the waning pandemic. It is my pleasure to coordinate the Summer Teachers Institute with our guest this episode, Jocelyn Chadwick. And while I envision our conversation as a good way for Institute participants to get to know Dr. Chadwick and myself, much of the ground we cover will be of interest to all listeners as it concerns the shifting sands of U.S. education during a period of both politicization and real demographic change, the latter of which Dr. Chadwick has been researching and writing about for many years. She is currently an education consultant with, among others, NBC Learn and the Folger Library, having recently finished her term as president of the National Council of Teachers of English one of the largest professional organizations for educators in the country. As she mentions in this episode, her involvement with NCTE dates back a full half century to when she joined as an undergraduate English major at Houston Baptist University before taking her first teaching job at Irving High School in Texas. It's a long way from Irving to the Harvard School of Education, the site of Dr. Chadwick's final academic position one of her companions along the way was Mark Twain. In 1998, she published The Jim Dilemma, Reading Race in Huckleberry Finn, one of the most exhaustive investigations of the novel's ever-evolving controversies. She has since published numerous editorials, book chapters, and lectures on Twain's work, especially as it relates to primary and secondary school teachers and students. For more about the upcoming Summer Teachers Institute, which will take place on July 13th and 14th, please visit marktwainstudies.org and click on the events tab or follow the link in the show notes. I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Jocelyn Chadwick. But I thought we would start with uh, a little conversation about Generation Z. Right? Oh, cool. <laughs> that uh, when we first started working together probably it's been about five years ago now yeah you were the first person who i knew who was talking about gen z as a constituency who was going was who was already challenging our assumptions about curriculum design, about pedagogy, who you were excited about the challenges they posed to education, but you also were, were out front saying we need to prepare for and better respond to the challenges that these students are, are putting to us because they will not learn the same way that maybe the preceding generation learned and yeah. that we are going to have to adapt. And so I wanted to start with sort of returning to that conversation. I have now seen the first wave of Gen Z students entering higher education just in the last few years. And right. I was, to some extent, better prepared through my conversations with you. But I also would agree that things are changing in the classroom 
by virtue of a new generation of students with a different set of values, a different set of experiences, a different set of challenges. Right. And so I wanted to start by sort of asking you to explain where your thinking is now, right, about what are the sort of demands for classroom teachers at the elementary, secondary, and even college level who are dealing with students who are uh, are facing maybe more precarious situations, Mm -hmm. who have uh, a different understanding of the role of education in their lives. How are you thinking about Gen Z now? That's a great question because I was just in virtually in Hindi Elementary in Elmira Uh (laughs) earlier this week with uh, some fourth graders. And I, I have to tell you, I always leave, no matter if they're elementary, middle, high school, or a college that you know they've sort of found their their footing and and they're, they're finding their voice and it is a strong voice what keeps surprising me about gen z is how young the voices are the fourth grade that i shared an hour with asked me questions that my graduate students have never even thought about asking with regard to mark twain as they scaffolded their here and now and the past so these were kids fourth graders who were actually processing what was it like in the past? And these were very specific questions. Uh, what was his family like? What was he like around women? And I'm thinking, this is a fourth grade boy who just asked me a question about what Twain's per- perspective was about women during his time period. I think that's rather interesting. So for me, what I know now that when we first, as you say, started talking about it at least five years ago, I never thought that I would enter a text in a different way. I'm from the old school because I'm old and was trained that whatever my professor said, that is what is the truth. And so I'm just supposed to reiterate that and students are supposed to espouse it back in a five paragraph essay and give it back or a research paper. Well, that's changed. It's really changed. I think about now how I read a text as a, a classroom teacher as a, a scholar, which is totally different in, in so many ways, I want to dissect it. I really want to understand the style. I want to look at every aspect of the text and, and the period so I can really drill in and get all the resonances out, but not just for the sake of doing that, but to prepare for the questions that I'm guessing Gen Z is going to ask. So I read it, a text from that perspective, and then I go back and reread the text from the perspective of Gen Zers, terms that they may not know, periods that they may not know, but they're trying to blend. Why are they reading this text? So what does it have to do with them? And I think sometimes my fellow K-12 teachers, not all, but a number, we don't necessarily teach teachers how to read our students as an audience. So our listening ears are not always on um, in terms of are they taking in the information? What are they doing with it? allowing students to push back. And a student the other day said, so I was reading a true story. Do you teach the story any differently to us than you do to other people? And I said, actually, I reread this story just three days ago before coming to you. And their eyes were like, seriously? And I thought, I said, I never walk into a class without rereading a text. And I said, I can tell you, I see the, the same text very differently now than I did when I last read it last year, they then blended my family's historical background 
because they asked me about slavery and I'm always honest with students. So I explained to them that the Chadwicks and the Browns are a blend. And I said, I, I'm a blend of slaves, of white, of a few Native Americans thrown in there. So there's an amalgam. And we talked about my father's family owning the slave land or my great grandmother on my mother's side seeing her father sold. Well, that's straight out of a true story. And I told him, I said, this time it touched me a little bit more closely than I have ever allowed it to touch me. So I, it, it became a personal experience. So my, what I know now, and I said this to them as well, I said, what I know now is I think I know what I'm going to say and interact with you when I walk into a classroom, whether it's you or graduate students. But I also know that I'm going to learn something that I didn't know and go places I didn't think I'd go and some are uncomfortable, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. that's, that's the point of great literature. Yeah. So that's where I am now. I'm in a learning mode. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I've taken away from you over the years, in order to get a, the classroom engaged, you are going to have to put at the forefront a rationale for why should I even care about this? Why should I even read this? That just the fact that it's on the syllabus is not enough, right? Not enough anymore, right? There's got to be a very clear rationale for how does this fit my life now? Yeah. And why should I care about this history? How is it relevant to me? Th those are questions that I now foreground on a regular basis in a way that I didn't necessarily feel compelled to. Yeah earlier. And I also think the the idea that you, you forward there, getting them to, to use their innate talents for critique. One of the things I found myself doing the last couple of years that I, I can never really remember doing, you know, 10 years ago, is going into a class, forwarding an interpretation, which I myself did not agree with, right? <laughs> but knowing that this interpretation was going to be something that they would want to push back against, right. and that their inclination to push back against things is, is something that that is very generative. And so oftentimes sort of choosing an interpretation that I don't necessarily believe, but knowing that it had things that they would want to talk about and that they would want to, in fact, disagree with. Right. Now, sometimes, of course, they disagree with things that I do believe. <laughs> it's good, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's good. And it's there's no one answer to the lit. I mean, that's the whole point when it's, there's just no one answer because not all of us have the same experiences or backgrounds or beliefs. Right. And, you know, now that the states have put in this cultural component where teachers, you know, just saying, okay, I, I think I've been doing this all along, but now it's scripted into the curriculum, which makes it a whole different thing. And that sort of leads me to, to another question I wanted to ask you. You spend a lot of time with students across the country and across the the range of grades, you know, before COVID, you were traveling. Now you're doing a lot of that travel via Zoom. Yeah. But you you end up in a lot of different classrooms uh, all across the country. Are there things that you see regionally different uh, in terms of differences between elementary and secondary, or are there things that sort of unite this group uh, of students, e even in spite of their their 
regional differences, the urban, suburban, things like that. You get a chance to see a much more diverse set of classrooms than probably just about anybody I know. What kind of takeaways do you have from sort of getting to to drop in to pedagogical settings all over the country? That That's a great question, too. There are two answers to that, two observations. One, I, I've been working with teachers to try and help us all understand that in some ways, I won't say that we're part of the problem, but we have not had to recognize what we ourselves bring into our classes, what our own biases are, what our own predilections are, what our culture is, and how that sometimes gets transferred ever so subtly, not intentionally, but ever so subtly, ever so slightly, sometimes particularly in English classes, because we are who we are, and we're so passionate about what we teach. And we want students to be passionate. We want them to love literature. And I, I find myself trying to remind K-12 and, and even college folks, that's not the contract that we signed. We signed, a, unless you're in a PhD program and you're the, on the committee and you're saying, we get to tell you what you're going to do. That's a whole different ballgame. But the undergraduate, they want jobs. They want that degree. They want jobs. That's the contract. The contract K-12 is to particularly in English, is to create a child at the end of the road who is literate, who can read, who can think, who can write. Person doesn't have to love Walt Whitman, doesn't have to think Langston Hughes. If they do, that's great. But we're in a moment where, because we cannot as a group really articulate why what we do is so important, we've left ourselves open to a voice um, out there, not only of parents, but of some teachers who are pushing back, saying, why why teach Shakespeare? Why teach Mark Twain? And for me, I start thinking, well, if you say that, then should we also throw out Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, because she's old too, or Frederick Douglass. So how far are we going to go back in terms of just throwing the old stuff out? Or are we going to keep women and throw everybody else out? So there's that. There's that one component about how we enter the classroom. And that component is really important with Gen Zers because what binds them together across the country that I've noticed, they do not mind asking questions. They process, even though we don't actually see it as processing that we are used to seeing. They may look around, they may, you know, and we think you're not even paying attention. And then they come out with a question. You know, I mean, I saw it at, at um, uh, one of the schools I, where I was actually physically in, in Washington, and it was just brilliant. And actually, the, the teacher was teaching Twain using the 60 Minutes interview with David Bradley. And I, I was the observer. I, d- I did not interact with the students that time. I was there to interact with teachers and to make suggestions. And what was fascinating is that I think the teacher was caught up in trying to set his agenda of how he wanted the students to understand that documentary and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And it was brilliant. An Asian student, young Asian woman, ethnicity is important here. She said, okay, so now I'm confused. You said we can't use this word, but this guy in the in the documentary just used that word and you've just used the word. So, and I know we have friends here who use the word in songs and stuff. So I, I'm sorry, I'm confused. And the teacher never responded to the question. And I was sitting there, you know me, Matt, I was sitting there thinking, oh, please, oh, please, just, just 
say something. Just don't let her come. I mean, because that's a great. It was a. It was an eleventh grade class, so she's sixteen, and here this this she's being honest. A young young woman speaking out in class, asking the teacher for guidance, if which is what we want. Well, the questions may not be what we want them to ask, but they are asking questions that they want to ask, that they are trying to process. So I see that across all the country. And what fascinates and frightens me a bit, I shouldn't say frightens, concerns me, is how young the students are who are thinking such deep thoughts. I'm, I'm really concerned about that because I, I you know, if you start talking about the economy in a text or or homelessness and you know, moving, having to move or not having enough money or not having enough food, and the student really is processing that information, I, that fourth graders can then bring it to bear and inter, interlock the text with what's happening to them and then articulate it to you. I, that's new. That's totally new for me. Now, now I've become a bit more accustomed to it, but I can't say that it still doesn't take me, take me off guard at moments when students. I mean, and again, it happened earlier this week with the fourth grader, and and she just talked about how she is a voice to help people understand and help her classmates understand difference. And I'm thinking, but you're a fourth grader, and okay. And it, there's a cognitive dissonance that I, I feel all the time in which your answer brings to life. It, we have this generation of students who are, for the large part, fearless. That's right. They do not recognize anything as off limits. Yep. They are not going to accept a kind of power dynamic in the classroom just because that's the way it is, right? Your authority is going to have to be earned by how you answer questions and how you address their interests and their desires and their ambitions. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, as you mentioned I think a lot of teachers, particularly at the K through 12 level, particularly in public schools, feel as though every statement they make brings with brings risk with it. Right. And that their, you know, their school boards, their the parents, their administrations, you know, and all the way up to the, the state houses are more concerned with what's happening in the classroom, more willing to politicize curriculum than uh, than certainly any point in my life. Right. Uh, and so on the, at the same time, we have this generation of students who really needs their teachers to be prepared to answer difficult questions right. and who aren't going to take the education seriously unless those teachers are willing to deal with those difficult questions, aren't going to accept the authority of the, uh, the teacher without uh, them answering those difficult questions. And yet I think teachers are more frightened than ever about actually giving straight answers. The difference between what I see as a successful classroom now and the classroom that that needs a bit of tweaking, where there is a very supportive and strong administration, as with the school where I was uh, earlier this week, the teachers feel more confident in being able to listen to and, and respond to those questions. You know, some of these teachers will even say to their students, and I've said that this is good to say, I don't know, or, you know, 
this makes me uncomfortable. I'm, I'm white, this makes me uncomfortable. One of the questions the fourth graders asked me this week was, do you have, can you tell us, give us examples of where you have experienced racism or sexism? And I thought, okay, again, fourth grade, gotta answer this question, alrighty then. Where there is a supportive administration, the idea of trust. And I thought that in the classes where I'm talking about, in the schools where I'm talking about, when I go into those classes, whether personally or virtually, I love always seeing an administrator in the back of the room, just coming in to listen and just, and the students don't, aren't nervous. They don't just tense up. The teacher doesn't tense up, but everyone understands that it's a supportive situation. I, I'm finding that that is really unique. It's, it's a unique dynamic. Yeah. One of the things that has interested me about getting to know you is, although obviously, you know, when I did the intro to this episode, I highlighted, you know, your very impressive resume. When you are talking to teachers, you often call back to an earlier point in your career. So I, I was hoping maybe you talk about sort of where your journey as a teacher began and how that experience informs your current uh, viewpoint on uh, the profession, but also maybe how the dynamics of the classroom have changed from when you began teaching in Texas, correct? Oh, my home state. I actually mimicked my parents as a child. So I grew up with dolls and chairs and a little blackboard. So I think I was cooked before knowing that I was cooked. Um, and uh, I started teaching at Irving High School. Uh, so I left Houston and went to Irving to teach. I was their first and only African-American English teacher, which was no big deal. I mean, because again, coming from activist parents, you just simply don't say, oh me, oh my, I'm the only one. My mother, as my mother would say, get over it. We didn't rear you to do this, just do your job. <laughs> so I would start every morning calling her saying, I'm at school, how are you? But the English teachers in that department were amazing. I, I call them the grammar mavens. And, and I call them that because it was as though they didn't actually see my race. And I know that people say, yeah, that's stupid. But it was one of those things of, great, you're, you're African-American. Now, what else you got? That's, that's the sense I had when I arrived at that school. The only thing they said to me is that we don't strike here. And I thought, okay, I hadn't thought about striking. I just started, um, I was 21 the district had just collapsed its black school. And again, I remember running out because my father died when I was 10. So I remember running out, calling my mother. I said, they, they, they got rid of their black school. I don't understand. And she said, oh my goodness. She said, just, we will talk about this. So we did. And uh, so we had one uh, black assistant principal, one black counselor, one black English teacher and one black vocational teacher. Everybody else was white and one Latina uh, librarian. And the students, they were great. It, actually, it was my one of my junior classes that inspired me to go back to graduate school because I didn't think I knew enough about the history, about the language, about writing. I could talk about what my professors had told me. I had all my notebooks and all of that stuff from all of my English classes. I wasn't really an education major. I was an English major. Irving High was a, I, to this moment, I look at that place, the principal, the counselors, the students, the parents, as a real learning curve for me. 
I'm still friends with my chair after all these years. It allowed me to grow as an individual and as a teacher and to understand that I didn't really know everything and I couldn't just hit the ground running. So to this moment, whatever my career is, I always tell people I'm a teacher, that, that that's who I am. I will die a teacher. And I like that. I think it has helped me at the college level because I don't take myself so seriously and feet firmly on the ground, teach the class and move on. There were some racial issues then. I mean, tensions and class tensions. And th that time at Irving was not just a learning curve for me in terms of my profession, but it, it helped me to grow up and realize that the world wasn't all that it was in my little cocoon in Houston, that I actually had to deal with people. Sometimes it wasn't always a happy thing. And I, I rely on that. They, they gave me more than, than they could ever have imagined, truly. They were great. Just wonderful. I've never actually left. <laughs> there is a, an extent to which you demonstrate that when you're talking with teachers is that you feel this sense of community with them. Yeah. You hear their struggles and they they intuit that you understand their struggles uh, from experience, right? Not just from understanding the dynamics of the structures of their institution, which you obviously do. I'm curious to, to follow up on that question. Do you think the dynamics have changed? I, I, I think we've become a bit more, uh, you've used the term politicized. I, I hate to think that we're taking our politics into the classroom. You know, the whole point is to teach students and to teach them independent thought, not to make them think the way we want them to think or to vote the way we want them to vote or to buy what we and and there there comes a time when you when I sometimes listen and uh, to colleagues and I I do more listening than talking and I hear how they want to change. I think change is great. Uh, I am a feminist at heart. I don't go in leading with that. And clearly, I'm African-American. I do think that what this generation is saying, that as adults, we have been too caught up in the codifications and the separations. And they just don't seem to want to have any of that. And for us as teachers, we have to adjust to that mindset because their questions really transcend codification. They're trying to understand their reality, not come back and be in our reality, what we think is appropriate. And that's a big shift for us as, as English teachers. I mean, because we have been the domain, this is our domain, whether it's K-12 or at the college level. Um, you know, I, I have, I have a, a, a colleague and a dear friend who said once a couple of years ago, I just have to have my sabbatical. I have to have a life of the mind. And I, I looked at my colleague and I said, you must be kidding me, right? I mean, give me a break. Therapy, you don't, please don't say that to a parent. I have to have the life of the mind and I need a break. Don't hurt us. Every time you say stuff like that, it's just like a bath. You know, just kill us, why don't you? I'm on one of my little hobby horses of how we as English people shoot ourselves in the foot. You know, because parents don't actually see what we do from cradle to grave is important. We're the only content area that has kids cradle to grave. They cannot function 
unless they have us. And we don't articulate that well. Our Gen Zers are kind of understanding it, ironically. And I don't, I don't know how they're doing, how they're getting that they are supposed to kind of listen and give us pushback. But I think that's the biggest shift that we as educators, it's, and it's so easy, and you know, it's so easy to get caught up in the ether. I wish that we could, as a profession, just take a moment and for the college people to really talk and listen with the K-12 people and for the K-12 people to really talk and listen to each other and for us all to get together, all the egos left at the door and to really think about what are we seeing? The questions that you're that you have been, you and I both have been ex examining, as you say, for the past five years and trying to figure it out. How do we help each other? How do we help each other better address our students in these very trying times? Which, I mean, gosh, 18 months. These students are forget about 9/11 and and the Great Recession. COVID-19 has flipped everything over. It's just so different. Families are different. I mean, so they're dealing with all of that, plus they're coming to school. We do have to step up. We do owe parents the, the explication of why what we're doing is so important, why literature is vital as a filter and a buffer where students can experience something that is close to them, but they don't have to tell anybody you know, that fictional distance of pain and angst or whatever, the, the, the fiction can do it. And as teachers, we have to just sort of take a back seat there and not guide them and tell them what they're supposed to be thinking, but listen to how they're taking it in. We've lost a lot of authors. I think that folks on the college level don't really understand how many authors we've lost in the anthologies in K-12. Both white and black authors just don't exist anymore. They're, they're just gone. How far are we willing to go with that just to keep losing them? And I think that's a shame because students want to know. Mm -hmm. I think that when students start asking about the past, about history, we have to answer that. And if we can answer it with literature, the texts that we teach, so much the better. Those students would never have asked me those questions had we not been reading a true story or beloved or whatever. And that's, I mean, one of the things you have clarified to me that I, I think was always in my own personal understanding of why what we do is important, but you, you say it in a, a much more crystalline version, is that like because this is a class that students experience from early elementary all the way through college, mm -hmm. right? English classes are also they're a history class, they're a sociology class, they're a psychology class, they're an art class. And for many students, their only engagement with something like economics might, right. it might be through their English class. In some ways, English has to do all of that work at some point along the way. That's right. It's an incredibly pressuring thing to put on English faculty at the K through 12 and at the college level. But it, it is the, the system that we have created. It is, yeah, this is where we find ourselves right now. And this is the new task for us to make the, the text live. It's no longer just find the metaphor, underline the transitive passive voice verb, 
write the simple sentence, the compound sentence. I mean, that, that, no, no, that, that's, no, that's, no, doesn't work anymore. So as I said, you, you spent a lot of time in classrooms all over the country, but another thing you've done is spend some time on Capitol Hill in state houses oh. with parent advocacy groups. You've seen education policymaking me- mechanisms as well as the actual on the ground classroom experience. And how has going to, to Washington, going to uh, state capitals, spending time with school boards, how has that changed your thinking about what we do? Again, going back to Irving High School, there are some things folks don't know about the state of Texas. It wasn't always, it, no state is static. Right. When I started out teaching, it was required that English majors be members of NCTE and MLA and, and the, the local affiliates and the national. I mean, it was a requirement. You, there was no choice there. And then getting into a school that supported my going to Washington because NCTE would uh, have a summit. Uh, that was when Kent Williamson was the president and they would have a summit in Washington every February. And the, the Secretary of Education, I mean, at one point we even had Senator Kennedy, Edward Kennedy, come in and talk to us. There were teachers around the country who had never met coming together and listening to aides and people on the Hill and being able to ask questions, listening to the hard questions and the hard answers of the budget is the budget. And some of you folks need to get ready because it's going to be cut even more. That's just it. it there's going to be no more money or Common Core, the, the, the fight about the core. I thought the the argument about that was so interesting because all states had standards. And the question, even when I was teaching, what happens when a child moves from one district to another or from one state to another? Where is the consistency or the linearity there? What, you can't just have something to remake over. I I learned that politics is not commensurate with the welfare and education of children. They talk about it. I think some of them may even believe that they truly care. And it this is a cross party line. It doesn't matter. It is straight up business and education is not at the top. Again, I don't care what folks say. We can talk about it all day. I, I'm a Southern. I feel like I can say this. People talk about going to church on Sundays or wherever, and, and then they create all sorts of chaos when they leave after they, they've done their Sunday thing. It's basically the same thing. They talk a good game about education, but then when it comes for the rubber to meet the road, they don't listen to the teachers. Very few people are listening to the classroom teachers. And the younger the classroom teachers, no one's listening to them, which is a shame because this is our, this, this is our new crop. You know, th- these are the new people who are going to take the place of those of us who are totally aging out. At this juncture, I don't think they feel like they do have a voice or even a firm hand of understanding how the politics and the legislation works. Example, one of the questions they were talking about, can you have a license for teachers that will go across state lines? My license is in Texas. I can't teach public school in Massachusetts without going back to undergraduate school taking history classes. (laughs) I mean, that sounds stupid, right? Still, you cannot. You cannot cross state lines without having to go back and get your, quote, requisite hours so that you can have a license in that particular state. It's that antiquated. So if if something as simple as I'd like a license that can go across the state, like my driver's license, to 
paying for, for education, really getting the, the technology in there, helping train teachers, giving teachers the resources, coming up with in, innovative ways to engage teachers other than teachers having to create it themselves. That's not what Washington is about. It, it will pour money in certain things, but not where it counts in terms of really listening to how we're going to create more literate and, and when I say literate, not just reading, and, but financial literacy, social literacy. How are we going to create an individual who can take a document and say, this is what I think about it, and this is why I think about it, and I'm not really sure. I, I, I think I have more questions about that. Those are the kinds of children that we're supposed to be exiting. Mm -hmm. I have not missed a single NCTE Washington moment except when COVID started. And that's a pretty long time we were still in the very same predicament the last time I was on the Hill. It was still the same thing. You're going to, the budget's going to be cut. We're going to bring, we're going to make sure that all the teachers are doing the same thing at the same time. Well, where's the creativity in that? I mean, I, I agree with standards, but so you're going to corral me to the point that I feel I can't even say, well, I have an idea. Would it be okay if I did this? And so you're going to make the administrators also feel that they are the, the guardians at the gate. They're policing. They're policing. Yeah. yeah. And in policing the teachers, they're policing the students. And in a sense, they're policing thought and growth. I work with a group of teachers uh, around the country whom I call the hub. They're the ones I go to. I mean, they're my go-to teachers if, you know, if we have a project or something. And what fascinates me about that group, and it's from every corner of the country, diversity, all of us, we're there because we love what we do and we want to learn to do it better. And they all have supportive administrations. And these are not rich schools. I mean, I have one teacher librarian who had to go and he and his students sold bottle caps to buy books. So it's, it's from really, really rural Appalachia to California. And so it, there are teachers out there trying to do it. And those are the models but we don't talk much about them. Yeah. I, I want to come back to something you, you mentioned a little bit earlier that I think is relevant to, you know, a cross-section of our listeners definitely are going to be K through 12 teachers, maybe K through 12 teachers who are planning to come to the Summer Teachers Institute in a few weeks, but also certainly higher education professionals. And one of the things that you brought up earlier is this divide that I think we both feel between English education at the K through 12 level and English as a field of study at the undergraduate and graduate level. Yep. And certainly there's a lot of blame that passes back and forth between those two constituencies. I certainly hear it amongst English professors, right, that our students aren't prepared. What are they doing uh, at the K through 12 level? They don't write well enough. They haven't read X, Y, or Z. And, and we take our share of criticism as well for not adequately training teachers for the job that they actually have to do, for not, you know, teaching sufficiently the classics or changing the canon or not sufficiently integrating the canon. You spend a lot of time in both of these communities. Yes. Yeah. What are some things they need to know about each other? I think what we need to know about each other is that we need to flip the script. The folks in the ivory tower on the hill need to come down. I'm a pure English person all the way through MA, PhD, BA, all that stuff, but I am a classroom English teacher. I like having that background, but it doesn't prepare me to teach. 
I'm going to channel one of my favorite guys, my dad, of course, with Aristotle, my guy, audience, 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 audience. The audience is never static. We're getting older, but our audience, I mean, they may be 17, but it's a different 17 every year, or it's a different 30 every year. So the idea here is how do we make it more relevant? The college folks, I, I get the research. I love it. I am surrounded by books. If I'm working here in my study, I have B50s on. I'm deeply into the text. I don't want to talk. I don't want to eat. I just want to work. If I'm in a classroom with students, totally different. What I've got to do is marry those two so that I don't put the students off with all the polysyllabic words and all the history that is just yummy for me, but not necessarily for them. How do I make it yummy for them? How do I make it curious enough to them that they want to try their hand at repetition over and over again, or using this kind of image, or you know, listening to what they want to say to the lyrics that they think relate? I'm not one for killing texts, but I do think we all have to think about how do we take the more contemporary texts with the canon? The can- no one ever said the canon was static. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. MLA, you, you were there. MLA had a big fight about we're going to expand it. And then we had that little folks who broke off and went away. Okay, fine. Great. They left. And the rest of us stayed and said, well, we can expand the canon. The can- yeah, you can bring in lots of other people. So the canon is not static. The canon, all we're saying is that these are really great works that children and students should experience. And no, I don't think any censorship should occur just because a person is a white guy, a black woman, an Asian person, a Muslim, or whatever. If the text is good, read it. Even if the text is bad, read it and figure out what what makes it so bad. You know, I mean, Thomas Nelson Page, I have his complete works. He is the most racist writer, one of the most racist writers of the South. In the 19th century, you know this, and I I found his works amazingly helpful because it gives me an eye view, a first person eye view of how someone like Page and his contemporaries felt. Hiding that doesn't help me, doesn't help my students. And I think that with the two groups, we're in our silos. The college folks are hunkered down, you know, against the ed folks saying, you know, you're ed people. So we don't talk to you because you're not pure English people. Yeah, we are pure English people. No, may not spend my whole time studying one period, but we we're training the teachers who are going to teach your children and your children's children. And you might want to pay some attention to us and and let's talk about what is it that we're doing. And then for the college folks to talk to the K-12, because it's the same conversation we're having here, the K-12, the, the K through six, say, or K through five, by the time the middle schoolers get into sixth grade, the middle school teachers are saying, well, they didn't learn it in the elementary school. They didn't teach it. By the time they get to the high school, the high school teachers say, well, they didn't teach it. Well, okay, let's, now we've blamed everybody. Let's figure out what can we do and stop the internecine fighting. Sometimes we feel that we just have to do Mark. Mark Twain is his own entity or Toni Morrison is her own entity. Well, no, no, no. Each of these writers and all the writers have been reading other writers. We rarely touch that. We rarely go there with our students. Who has influenced these people? Whom have they read? Whom have they listened to? Whom have they interacted with? I used to teach at the University of North Texas. I was in the English department and my chair came in and he said, we're going to farm you out for one class. And I said, excuse me. And he said, nobody else wants to go and they need 
their their pre-service teachers need to have some grammar and linguistics and you're the only one who's taught school you know it you're going you have a class they thought that i was being farmed out and that nobody wanted such an awful job i mean that's where you're i mean you you, you expressed it very well that's exactly where we are and that we we cannot keep on this path and survive yeah we understand what these teachers have to teach along with now the culturally relevant teaching and learning along with the testing we have to arm them with resources and let them know that they have a foundation on which they can draw when they graduate that that foundation is always going to be there that they can come back and say look i'm having this trouble at the higher ed level we don't do that we just kind of say okay you got your degree see you goodbye right Good luck with that. You know, they don't land in Irving, Texas with the grammar mavens. Right. We have to rethink not just the ed department, but also the English departments, because if we don't, nobody will be taking our courses. Certainly college instructors are feeling across the country, particularly the kinds of English courses that I'm sure you took as an undergraduate, that I took as an undergraduate. Enrollments in those courses are are going down, and they've been going down for a long time. Now, places where and professors who have altered their curriculum to include a more diverse set of texts, sometimes more importantly, to change the sort of method that they approach the existing set of texts. Exactly. Those enrollments are fine. Mm-hmm. That suggests some of what, what you're saying is these students will, you know, will not accept that just because we taught the 19th century as a, a survey from you know the Civil War to World War One that that's the way they have to learn it or that they should care about that kind of temporal arc. And I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that. Why should they care? I mean, it's, it's up to us to explain yeah. and to illustrate, not to lecture. You said the keyword, change the method. We need to change our method. The method is old and Gen Z is not going to stand for it. I mean, they just won't. And they will vote with their money. I read an article which just shocked me several weeks ago that New Hampshire is floating the idea of of getting non-degreed people to teach certain classes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that how does that work? Now, that's really scary. It is. You you brought up earlier, right, that during the, the strongest periods in America's educational history, English teachers were with students from, you know, K all the way through undergrad. And that is going to be less certain going forward. And we are aware that something will be lost yeah. if students have less engagement with literature, less engagement, less opportunities to write, both creatively and critically. Uh, there's something significant will be lost. But also, I think increasingly, employers are aware that something is being lost. Yeah. Yeah. You have a lot of you know major corporations coming out and saying, we need students who have more humanities background, who take more English courses, history courses, philosophy courses. Uh, they're the ones who actually do well once they arrive on the campus at Google or Apple, right? That they, yeah. they need those tools in order to succeed in a dynamic environment. Um, we owe something to 
our society (laughs) in terms of sustaining and and rationalizing why students need to take these courses that they can't, we we can't just churn out people in pre-professional programs because those professions are changing so rapidly that just learning to code, right? Just learning the system of a particular profession at this moment isn't enough. You have to learn how to learn. And a lot of that learning how to learn has traditionally been happening in humanities courses and specifically in English courses. I keep telling teachers, students write, students write every day. They write constantly. They text, they blog, they Snapchat. They are writing. I mean, they are, it's audience purposification. It may not look yep. like what we want, but we can leverage what they love and do yeah. and bring them into what we are saying. Okay, now in, in the workaday world, you can do what you're doing with email and Snapchatting and blogging and texting. And also you can write that report. You can write that survey. You can write, you know, you can write code. I'm an old feminist broad English teacher. I love the technology. I understand it. And I can pass that around and show students a first edition of Mm -hmm. a book that they are a 19th century periodical that they've never seen and would Mm -hmm. never see if they were not at a university library. They're not going to see it in their high school, but they can see it on the iPad. As you said, it's a method, changing our method, rethinking how we share information and scaffold it and grow information. And so we can't leave without talking a little bit about Mark Twain. <laughs> Always about Mark Twain. Always about Mark Twain. Obviously, you're, you're the author of Jim's Dilemma. Many people may recognize you as one of the, the talking heads from the uh, Ken Burns PBS Mark Twain documentary. You have a well-established record t- writing about Huckleberry Finn. But what I've been interested in as I've gotten to know you in, in the last five years is you're a real advocate for reading Twain beyond the most famous Twain, right? Yeah. The, the Twain that you're most interested in now is not really even the novels. It's not Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and Prince and the Pauper and King Arthur's Court. And, and I think it has a lot to do with your thinking about scaffolding, right? Yeah. Is yeah. how, you know, how do I put Twain in conversation with contemporary authors, with current events? And so you're oftentimes drawing upon Twain's letters, on Twain's speeches, and now for the purpose of the Summer Teachers Institute, also poetry. And so what is it about Twain's short works that you find sort of resiliently exciting? I'm going to tell you a fourth grader asked me that question in in simpler words, but a fourth grader, again, just keep in mind, um, I love the question and I love your question. What keeps me really honed into the interviews, the speeches, the letters, the journals, we're never in the same space and place in life. I'm older. I'm COVID now. I'm Great Recession now. I'm Gen Zers now. And the anti-Asian, okay, the anti-Asian mm-hmm. pushback. I go back and I read parts of Twain's interviews or his speech about the 4th of July. And here we are coming up on Juneteenth and the 4th of July. And I think, why aren't we teaching this? Why aren't we teaching the extra? You don't need the whole Twain's speech or the whole of Douglas's, but the the idea of the excerpts that these two men were saying the very same thing and one would not expect them. You know, folks who don't really know Twain and who have a smattering of, yeah, I know Frederick Douglass, well, sort of, kind of, okay. And then to look at his, his comments about what he experienced, 
his journeys, you know. So we're focusing this 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 summer on the journey motif. And most of the texts we teach have a journey motif. And at the end of the the title for our, our institute this summer is, and that has made all the difference from Robert Frost. Twain's journeys and his interactions with Olivia and so many different people uh, who were different from him in ethnicity, in culture, in gender, in geographical location. He took it all in. So here we have someone who actually, we can chart his growth in perspective and in his own sense of so socialization. And very few authors provide that. We just don't have that many who actually provide it in their writing. How much does he love his wife? I have some telegrams that Peggy O'Brien allowed me to photograph from the folder where he's writing telegrams to Olivia saying, I'm here alone and I'm not happy. You know what I'm thinking? That's just, I mean, that's the guy. That's this big guy who's writing to his wife saying, I love you, I miss you. I'm not a happy camper that I'm here. These are the kinds of things that students today would resonate with. They want to know that this was a person. This was a, a person who felt, who cried, who hurt. Uh, one of the kids in the fourth grade said, did he play with his kids? Oh, yeah. Oh, he, yeah. He built toys for his kids. You know, so to be able to show them, saying it is one thing, but then to be able to show them his actual words or for, you know, like with showing the virtual tour of Elmira, which is so wonderful. He continues to speak when I don't think he's going to speak. You know, I went back through his few poems and, and I hadn't even thought about his poems until some teachers in Virginia said, we want to do some of his poems. I'm thinking, okay. So I went back and the, the one about bills and I thought, here we are. And you know, in an economic crisis, people just can't buy homes. They're losing homes. June 30 is coming, you know, so bills, bills, bills. And I thought, who knew? Who knew that Twain, here we are. I mean, you could use that with some of the, the fiction that you are already teaching. Again, helping students understand, and some teachers too, that just because an author is old, and in this case, old, white, and a guy, doesn't mean that he can't still speak or that he did not have relationships with people who were different. One story, I remember sitting at some place in some meeting somewhere, and a, a person walked up to me and said, I wanted to talk to you about Mark Twain. And why, why, why you, you know, it makes no sense. You're, you're black. And I said, why not? I, I'm sorry, I didn't see that there was a rule that black people can't study Mark Twain. And she said, I, I don't mean it that way. And I said, are you aware that Mark Twain actually had friends eventually who were of color? No, no, that didn't happen. I said, yes, it did. And she said, and she was just so upset. And I said, don't be upset. Just, I'm just saying, as teachers, I know we can't know all there is to know. I, I know that. But let's just not blast and destroy before we find out that these authors, men and women, Muslim, Asian, white, black, Native American, have all in some cases crossed and intersected, have read each other's works, have been influenced by each other's works, and are writing, yes, for an audience in time, but they're also thinking past. I, I just finished a project on Steinbeck and one of his quotes that I just, that keeps resonating in my head, while the author writes the last word and closes the book, the book never dies. It just keeps moving to the next generation. And that is the point. 
each generation gets to own its own imprint on these works. And if they don't see them, if they can't make the connections, you know, I don't care if a student takes Mark Twain's letters or short stories or the poems that we're going to do this summer and scaffold them onto some singer that they know whose name I have absolutely no clue works for me. As long as you can see some connection and it makes some meaning to you, I'd like for you to tell me about it. I'd like to hear because I'd like to learn how you've made those connections. We have got to think outside the box for our, for our future generations or we're just doomed to letting these great writers just go by the wayside and then we won't have anybody other than the latest person coming out. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with the latest person coming out, but that latest person is standing on a lot of shoulders. That was Jocelyn Chadwick. For more about the Summer Teachers Institute, which she and I co-organize, and which is coming up next month, please visit marktwainstudies.org and click on the Events tab, or follow the link in the show notes. This has been an episode of The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. Thank you for listening.